Thank you all for coming. My name is Devin Stewart. I'm from Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, a number of my colleagues have told you what is new and exciting about our project. I actually despair of equaling their eloquence, so I decided to outmarshal my rivals, outflank the critics, and tell you what is old and boring about our project. <laughs> An esteemed Arabist and great literary scholar, Wenching, who's right over here, once began an, a review of a collaborative work that I was involved in with a Chinese proverb that was something like this. Five stinky cobblers can out, out overpower the great general Wu. <laughs> now, I probably got the name wrong, but it was something like that, and I was beset by doubts about my career choice and my personal hygiene, <laughs> but, and I was wondering whether this was, in the Arabic rhetorical tradition, them fi surat al-mat, or mat fi surat al-them. Actually, a difficult question in this case, but I think it, it's a fitting tribute to the value of collaboration. Um, now, collaboration is not new. One of our uh, exemplars in this case are the great translators from 9th century Baghdad, right? the people who worked in the workshop of the Benu Shakir, the Hunayn ibn Ishaq, his son Ishaq ibn Hunayn, Thabit ibn Qurra, who we know from Ibn Nadim and other sources, translated together, translated in teams, revised translations, re-edited works, and then translated it again and uh, oh, did things over as the knowledge of the various fields advanced and technical terminology had been developed to capture, to capture um, the details of the text. <coughs> Another thing that was old and in which were inspired by Ponein ibn Hisak was the, the need to edit the text properly before uh, providing an accurate translation. He has, has actually a quite detailed uh, discussion of this problem in dealing with Greek texts, that he was beset by problems in rendering the Greek because the texts were inadequate. He had to expend uh, great efforts to get better texts, re-edit the text, and only then was he able to do a proper translation. Another Arabist from former generation, uh, from my professor, George Montesi, used to recite the 10% rule. In his view, the amount of Arabic uh, text that had been translated, uh, that had been published, was only 10% of what is there in the libraries. And of that, that had been published, only 10% had been edited adequately. So this gives you some idea not only of the wealth and richness of, of the Arab written tradition that we're dealing with, but also of the tremendous amount of work that lies ahead of this. Now, since he used to say this, it's been a number of years, and you might say, okay, the percentage is a little bit better, it might be 15%, right? but it's still quite low compared to what the, what the tremendous amount of work is. And one might imagine, especially if one is not in this field, that this, uh, the problematic texts are marginal, small things that people haven't been paying attention to and, and that haven't been used very much, so people aren't 
invested in, in getting a very good text, but it's actually not the case. These involve most of the fundamental, large, uh, critical texts for the history of all the fields in Arabic and Islamic studies. So just to give you one example, Al Mas'udi's famous history, The Meadows of Gold, was edited in the 19th century, right, between 1861 and 1877, by Barbier de Ménard and uh, Pavé de Corteil. Uh, it was published by the Société Asiatique, and this was used for a very long time. Then Pellard decided to redo the edition, right? And of course, he didn't really redo the edition. The edition had been based on the manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and and there are a decent number, something like 10 manuscripts there, but the number of uh, manuscripts of Mas'udi in the world are something like 80. And they're all over, from Istanbul, all of the European libraries, uh, Arabia, every, everywhere. Uh, Pelat did not use one additional manuscript. He, he just says in the introduction, I looked at a few, and it seems that the uh, manuscript tradition is unified. Which means, like, I'm not going to be bothered to do any work, right? So, um, this new edition was done in 1966 uh, uh, until 1974. There's also a black edition from the 19th century. But that's it. And this is just one of the major histories. Uh, you could talk about the history of a Tavari, the history of prophets and kings, uh, the uh, introduction to history of Ibn Khaldun, major, major works are suffering from the same thing. Uh, one with which I've been personally involved uh, for quite some time is the Fahrist of Ibn al-Nadim. The history of the publication of this work is incredibly frustrating and is still, and is still an issue. So, uh, when we're talking about editing, someone has said before, this is a, editing text is not as highly valued as it, as it has been in the past, as <coughs> is true with translation. And there are many reasons for this, but I think the most disturbing is a sense among academicians, not, not among the general public, that, that philology is a dismal science and has seen its day, that it's a really, it's a, you know, like making buggy whips or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that the interesting part only begins where philology ends. Right? So as if philologists are the guys who peel the potatoes and then the, then the master chefs make a feast and that's the, that's the job. So uh, this to me is very unfortunate. I think this project is an attempt to bring philology to the fore uh, because it needs to be supported. Now, there are many things I could talk about, the linguistic difficulty of, of doing these things. The, the main one I would like to talk about is technical terms. So in the, the book I translated, the book Joe translated, and many of the other books, uh, one of the serious problems are technical terms. Technical terms in Arabic are an especial uh, problem because they tend to be ordinary words. So in medieval Europe, often what happens is the technical terms they would put in Greek. So when you're reading along in Latin and you see the Greek term, it pops out very clearly and you know that it's that. In Arabic, it doesn't because they're ordinary words and there's always the possibility that you can interpret it 
in the wrong way. Either way, that it's an ordinary usage and you inter interpret it in the technical sense or vice versa. So this is a vexing problem and what uh, people in our field have often do is simply to duck. You know? Sort of like George Bush with the shoe. Or something like <laughs> so what they do is, is um, they leave the technical term in transliterated Arabic. Uh, our professor, Maklisi, to go back to the old version, is uh, one of the things he said, when you see that in the text, what do you know? You know, the person who was writing it did not know what it meant. <laughs> but, but you see, it's standard practice in many subfields of our study that uh, people leave not one or two, but swaths of terms untranslated in the text. Now, I could blame, philosophers are very bad about this, but, but many other people are very bad. Grammarians, philosophers, uh, people write about law, and, and many, many, even, but even more ordinary things like historians, literary scholars are also doing, doing the same thing. So, uh, this is a problem, and, and in this series, we've really tried to translate as much as possible to render it accessible to someone who is not in our field. The cure for, for this problem, for us, is to go read a learned disquisition on Chinese rhetoric or Sanskrit grammar, and, and you immediately notice the problem, whereas you're blind to it in your own, in your own field. So I think that, that's the cure. You have to force yourself to do this. It's sort of like going into fourth year Russian class and sitting there to see how it feels, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, there are many, many examples. Uh, George Mukasey was very good about, about this and about getting the technical terms correct. So one of his great contributions was to point out that darasa does not just mean to teach, it means to teach law. And mudarris is a professor of law. And ajaza means to grant permission, but it also means to give a certificate of study, which he characterized as a doctorate of law. So there are all kinds of problems that can arise when you get this wrong, and they're not simple because the technical terms can also have many technical meanings, and people get them wrong. So one that I see very often in books about legal history, they'll use the term faqi, and they translate it as jurist, which is often correct, but it's often, the term often means a law student, right? and most people don't know that. So it, it creates an issue. Now, um, uh, I think was, this project also forces us to come to grips with, with uh, the myth of globalization. There's this an idea that now, in modern times, everything is accessible to everybody, and it's very simple, and librarians often think like this. So you go to the library, and they think, think, oh, you can just look it up, and then you can find it. And it's like, no, you can't. Uh, it's like, so, um, and there are many, many striking examples of this in, in our field. There is, uh, I've been in, you know, the Fihris of Ibn and Indim happens to me at the moment, my favorite book, and an incredibly important book in, in the history of Arabic and Islamic studies. The best book about Ibn and Nadim and his work is a 1989 Russian work by a scholar named Valery Polosin. Now, 
I didn't know about this work until 2000 and something when Fan S mentioned it to me, and and I realized after I found it, I said, "Oh my God, this is this is the thing. This is the state of the art. People don't know about this. Even if they know about it, they can't read it because it's in Russian. And this is true of people all over the Arab world, people in all over the European countries who are interested in this very very topic, but but can't make progress because they don't know." The language. So there's just been a new edition uh, by the Forkan Foundation in London of the Fihrist. And the editor, Ayman Fouad Sayyid, has it in his bibliography, but he obviously could, did not read it. Uh, he must have, he was told by Fanes about it after the whole thing was done, and he just put it into the bibliography. And he repeats many of the things that Polosin said, but in, and doesn't know some of the things that he said. This is an ongoing problem, and, and the problem of translation is, is uh, key in overcoming these barriers. Thank you. Hi, Joe Lowry again. The uh, organizers graciously put me on two panels before lunch, so. <laughs> Um, and just a couple of quick points about, this is a panel on editing the corpus, so a couple of quick points about our Arabic texts. Um, I, I should just say, maybe we had a, a very learned uh, and rigorous uh, day-long seminar with Dmitry Gutas, an eminent scholar in our field, about how to edit Arabic texts properly. And I had already done my book by this point, and I reflected on the fact that as we went point by point through the steps that one should take methodically and responsibly to establish these texts, I had complied with none of them. <laughs> so I'm not sure that I should even be on this panel, although I, there are reasons for doing what I did. But um, it was not up to Gutas's high standards. Uh, so that's um, maybe necessary background uh, for what I'm about to say. Yes, I, I have questions still about the audience for our series of you know, a site of endless uh, fantasizing on my part, probably. Um, but who is the audience for our Arabic texts? This is a thing I wonder about. I suppose one obvious uh, answer is it's for students. You know, if you're teaching a difficult text, it's handy to have a parallel translation, although I, I don't know, I don't really teach texts with English translations next to them when I'm teaching Arabic, so I don't know who teaches like that. Um, scholars, uh, I suppose, um, people who want uh, quick access to a text that they might not be able to travel to the Arab world and buy easily, uh, and our, our volumes are relatively affordable, so it's possible that scholars of, of this literature will be using our Arabic texts. Um, but I wonder if uh, native speakers uh, of Arabic are also an audience for our text. And I, anecdotally, um, when I uh, run into people who are from the Arab world and tell them what I do, they're always interested, or frequently interested, if they're educated people, or if they're habitual readers of literature and obtaining copies. And I think um, they are often interested in their heritage. And so I think we probably should consider the possibility that our texts are of interest to um, native speakers. Um, and not all these texts are easily or widely available in bookstores in the Arab world. Um, but whether our marketing uh, in the Arab world is uh, something that um, addresses that need, I'm, I'm not confident of. Um, this raises a sort of related question uh, to my mind, which is, is our translation only for non-native speakers of Arabic? And again, I, I think um, it might be the case that there are native speakers of Arabic who are interested in English translations, particularly of difficult and culturally central texts. Um, anecdotally, I, I suspect this might be the case. Why, why might that be? I mean, surely if anybody can read uh, these texts, it's native speakers of Arabic. 
Um, I think one reason is linguistic difficulty. Some of the texts are quite difficult. Um, they're dense. Um, they are at a great historical remove from the present day, so they require um, some introduction, some paratextual material. And I think also, at least in the case of religious texts, there may be some barriers of religious authority to um, accessing these texts or feeling that one can read them uh, simply to try to see what's in them and what might be useful in them. This uh, leads me to wonder who is the audience for the original text. Well, we know this in some cases. Um, often they're in a scholastic setting uh, you know, of, of exchange and sort of interlinear uh, inter interlinear or uh, oral commentary, uh, which may not be reflected in the Arabic texts we establish. Um, it's interesting to wonder whether our representations of these texts reflect these original contexts of scholarly debate or scholasticism. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Some of the texts reflect this more obviously than others. Um, of course, that's not the only context in which these texts came into being. Many were for entertainment, many were for private reading. So there's a wide variety of original contexts. And of course, um, a certain homogenization takes place in the addition of the Arabic text, which flattens out those original contexts. And I suppose that's unavoidable, but I think it's worth um, bearing in mind. Another question you might ask, uh, you know, our, our translations are said in our, our propaganda literature, which is back here, uh, to be modern and lucid. Um, I wonder if our editions are modern and lucid of the underlying Arabic text in, in some sense. Um, I think yes is the answer to this. Uh, you know, if we, to the extent that we have uh, large critical apparatuses, these are put online, they don't clutter the Arabic text in the volume. Um, the paragraph numbering in all the text, I think, makes for some more manageable reading uh, of things that might be difficult or perceived as difficult, dense, and medieval. Um, there is some question about how readable our font is. I think when we first looked at the font that these books were going to be published in, we all were slightly taken aback at first, and I've had this response from others. When they look at the volumes, they complain about the font, although it is based on a late Ottoman manuscript hand. Um, I, I like it now, but it did take me a while to get used to it. So. Um, I, I do think we've done a reasonable job of making the Arabic texts um, modern and lucid. Um, and then finally, I would say this, that one of the models for our project is the Loeb Classical Library. But thinking about the Arabic text, you know, what is the model? And I suppose here we would have to think maybe about how we read Shakespeare in English or Jane Austen. And are our books really like the way uh, those books are for us when we purchase them today? And I, I think no. And you know, Matthew um, sort of alluded to that. Uh, you know, there's something sort of forbiddingly scholarly and clinical about this, even though it's pretty uh, and attractive. I like the fonts, the calligraphy's nice, the color is nice. Um, but we are addressing that, I think, by um, coming out with these books in paperback to make them more accessible and more reader-friendly. And I think maybe that will address some of the concerns that were expressed in the last panel about the sort of uh, error of authority <laughs> that appears from these sort of severe lines and the, the deep blue and... Um, yeah, all the numbering and, and so on. So, um, yeah, those are just my few, you know, some, some uh, sort of unconnected thoughts about editing the corpus. Um, I might just say one more thing, which is uh, obviously, you know, we present the corpus uh, for English readers mostly as a kind of undiscovered uh, collection of treasures. Um, I'm not sure that you know the purposes of the Arabic text are exactly the same uh, because again you know it raises the question of who, who the Arabic text is for. Um, but inevitably, when you present a collection of texts like this, it'll be presented as literature. 
And I think although we deny sometimes that we're producing a canon, it will be hard not to give the impression that we're creating a certain uh, kind of canon of Arabic literature. So these are all things I think it's worth thinking about as we think about the Arabic editions. Thanks. Ah, uh, Julia Bray again. I want to go back to uh, Michael Cooperson's uh, PowerPoint object lesson and to uh, address some of the points raised in the panel before uh, through talking about this. In spite of the uh, impression that you may have got from the manuscript that, that Michael put up on PowerPoint, which is a real horror, on the whole, very often, Manuscripts of Arabic are a lot easier to read than printed texts, and this is for a variety of reasons. It is less cluttered very often, the presentation on the page, it doesn't have lots of scholarly footnotes or footnotes for school children. Um, it often uh, understands the sequence better than modern editors do, so modern editors try to be helpful and they send you off in the wrong direction. Of course, we are slaves of punctuation and things like that, and if anybody tells us it, it, the sentence stops here, we believe them. Um, so going back to the texts and trying to tackle these problems of interpretation through looking at the manuscripts, if we can look at the manuscripts, or through and or through translation. Uh, we very often, when we're teaching, we get into a habit of reading uh, where everybody sort of knows what things sort of mean and lots of things aren't translated and there are little problematic syntactic transitions and so on that we skip over. And then when you come to write it all down, you realise that you really don't understand it at all. And therefore, had you just been reading the stuff in order to edit it without also trying out a translation, you would probably not have made a very good job of it. Now this leads me back to the point that has been made by several of us about whether our editions and translations guide people in reading our texts in whatever the proper way is held to be, but also to the point made by speakers in the earlier panel about whether you can read texts in different ways. As far as I'm concerned, I am a lazy and passive reader, and I think anybody can read whatever they like, however they like. Um, and I don't see why, even in the academic world, this should be thought of as being a malpractice, since it is a very frequent and a very productive practice, and one to which I think we ought to expose ourselves, even if in an academic setting we do so only for the purpose of correcting ourselves. Um, so, as far as I'm concerned, anybody can read uh, uh, the Epistle of Forgiveness or Consorts of the Caliphs or whatever in whatever way they like and get out of it whatever they like. But the kind of guidance that our layout and editing gives people does allow them to read in a more uh, directed, let us say, more correct way. And it points out the differences in content between things which in presentation appear to be identical. So if you take uh, this whole series, two volumes of little stories about Ahmad ibn Hanbal, uh, they all consist of, uh, I, probably, I haven't read that a lot, but they probably most of them consist of a chain of people um, reverently passing down information about our hero. And then you get the story. Well, you get exactly the same format in Consorts of the Caliphs. 
because Consorts of the Caliphs was written by a scholar. And because also this is a process which adds value uh, to what you are saying, and seriousness, weight to what you are saying. When you recite the litany of people who are handing down information about Ahmad bin Hanbal, uh, you are gaining a sort of uh, moral nourishment, I suppose. But as you go through the uh, similar chains of transmitters, in the case of consorts of the caliphs, you're getting a rather more varied diet. Oh, I was surprised. I didn't know so-and-so was interested in this kind of material. And, oh, if so-and-so, who is such a serious person, thought the story was worth handing down, I had better take it seriously. So what appears identical in format can actually have a very different uh, set of meanings for the readers. And by dint of repetition, as we read this and as we read that, uh, we too can be directed into that way of reading. Another uh, thing that our layout does is that it makes us see that something that looks flat on the page is actually a script. And it's a performative script, whether you read it aloud, thus reproducing the way that it would have been told in certain enactments, or whether you read it silently, which is harder work and it's easier to get things wrong. This applies very much to finding out who is saying what to whom and what the point of it all is. And also, it very often, with poetry, <coughs> helps us to understand something which would have left us completely foggy if it had just appeared flattened out in a quotation or an anthology. And it's very often the case that poetry is dismembered and reassembled, hacked at, um, travels around, and you very often find it in modern editions in an incomprehensible form as a result because it has been extracted from a context which showed you what is happening, who is saying what and why. And I want to just end by taking a very small example from Consorts of the Caliphs uh, of a uh, poem which is put together by three people. And if you had the three lines one after the other, they simply wouldn't work. You wouldn't know what was going on. So first of all, I'll read them to you in that form, supposing that a zealous modern anthologist has put together this poem from various quotations in various places, hasn't come across consorts of the caliphs, so doesn't know the narrative context. Um, this is not one of our more brilliant translations, I have to say. Uh, fearing she'd leave, I learned how to please her, but my love only taught her to revile. He shrinks from my love, though I strive to come near. To the warmth of my touch, he is chill. Whatever he does, my affection endures. Adore him, I must, and I will. Well, this is baffling. Who is saying what to whom? Why all these switches? What happens is this. This is a vignette which throws some light on a character called Bunan, who was a slave of the caliph Mutawakkil, and our author tells us she was a poet and is mentioned by Abu Faraj al Isfahani in his Book of Songs, which is the authoritative work from which most of the first half of this book is culled. So we get the quotation of the authorities cited uh, to introduce this uh, vignette which ends in Bunan, the poet herself, 
who is both the source of the story and an actor in the story. And she says, one day, Antawakir went for a stroll in the palace courtyard with me on one arm and Fad, who is another woman poet, on the other. After taking a few swift steps, he quoted these lines. Fearing she'd leave, I learned how to please her. Nearing, I suppose, at one or the other. But my love only taught her to revile. Cap that, he said, which was a standard game, um, capping people's poetry. So the first poet, woman poet, improvises. He shrinks from my love, though I strive to come near to the warmth of my touch, he is chill. Then I, the narrator, capped that, I say, whatever he does, my affection endures. Adore him, I must, and I will. So out of about three lines, we get a play. Um, and if you read it like that, it works. But if you don't read it like that, of course, it makes no sense whatsoever. And I think that our mise en page does try to enable readers to follow what is going on, if not perhaps always successfully much more. Thank you very much. Actually, it's five to one. Right? Yes. So one is lunchtime. Right. So shall we go lunch first or take one question? Let's take one. Do you just have a yeah. question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two are just technical. The third one is actually for you. Uh, quickly, um, do, are you going to be ebooks at some point, number one? And will you put actual pictures of manuscripts mm -hmm. up as William has just made the case that the layout of manuscripts by itself is worth looking at? Um, information. The third question is, in uh, portraying dialogue, it's very clear to have the, the parties sort of um, separated by line, which is the way you do it with English literature. But in Arabic, and I've started doing that when I edited my text, because I sort of liked it as well, it's very clear, it's like, um, you shoot back and forth in the dialogue. But then different editors have different opinions, and it's not normally done in Arabic typesetting. So what is the current thought on you know, mimicking an English editing practice or uh, doing something that is a creation in, in Arabic or leaving it like classical Arabic text editing style? Does anyone from the press want to address the first question by online hijab? Sure, yes. Uh, E-books are available for all our titles, um, for Kobo, for iPad, for, for Kindle. Um, so this was... Um, uh, they're available in both languages, so we sort of uh, decided to sort of um, do a sort of cascading format. You can look at it right there. Um, uh, English, then Arabic in sections. So they are available. It took some doing to the, the left to right and right to left that the devices sometimes have problems with, but um, perhaps we can pass that around afterwards. And, uh, yeah. Did you say about formatting dialogue? <laughs> this is a thing that's been solved from text to text differently because the, the dialogue is quite different in different texts. So in the consorts, it's often quite dramatic and fast flowing, and there's a lot of witty repartee. But in other kinds of texts, there's a more sort of scholastic uh, paragraph length exchange of ideas. So really, it, it depends on the text and how you think this will be, at least in the English text, formatted best. In the Arabic, I think we, at least in the, at least in my book, we tended to leave longer paragraphs and make it represent, uh, resemble more normal typesetting practices in the Arab world or even manuscript uh, 
But as you can see from Michael's projection, one of the main problems is avoiding, because of the polyphony of these Arabic texts, and whose voice are we listening to? That's another problem. We want to avoid these clusters of quotation marks, which are really terrifying. Um, so that, that is the main uh, problem that, that, that we confront, I think. We've also done something else which is unusual, and we haven't done it in all the texts. I mean, uh, it is implicit in what you're saying, Julia, about the uh, chain of transmission. In, in consoles, we decided to keep in the same font size as the rest of the text because we felt that, uh, and Julia felt strongly about this, and we'll agree, that who was saying what was so important, and we shouldn't somehow diminish that importance. But in Michael's text, because half the text is chains of authorities, we decided to drop the font size. And then decided, decided that it would look weird if the Arabic didn't drop font size as well. Plus, Stuart would have probably wondered how he would align the texts. So we have sometimes allowed ourselves to do things that are not part of the tradition of Arabic editing. But we've, in all cases, had a defensible position. We had, and it's not the same across books, right? So in some books, for example, in consorts, all the poetry is italicized. Because if you read an account like the one Julia read, and you don't realize you've switched into poetry, and then switching back into prose and go back into poetry with just single lines, you might lose the whole point. And so that's, I believe, still correct me if I'm wrong, the first time we've italicized poetry. Yes, that's entirely throughout the text. In fact, you queried it. Yes. He queried it. He said, this is what we've been doing. But there's an argument to be made here for the readability. Now, we didn't italicize the Arabic, right? Because, right. But when we dropped the font size, we had to, or text wouldn't match up on, on, on the pages, right? So there are considerations. That, that come up that we don't anticipate. Yeah, I should say that as far as the dialogue goes, I wanted to imitate Joe because Joe uh, emphasized at one point something that Arabists know that others may not know, which is that classical Arabic doesn't have punctuation and doesn't need punctuation. <coughs> it can be printed as a continuous block of text and there's nothing unusual about that. Uh, the problem is that when I punctuated the English as dialogue, which is necessary for clarity, and left the Arabic as a block, Stuart wrote to me and said, wait a minute, now you've got an English page that looks very diffuse, and then this solid block of Arabic text, and then a big chunk of white space. And we can't publish a book that way. So this is the unintended consequences, uh, which is exactly the point I wanted to make by showing you the last slide of the final Arabic, where I back reformatted the Arabic to look like English, which is distortion. Uh, and so, yes, I confess. And that's, but that's the reason it was an unintended consequence of that. John Paul, did you have a question? Yes, I was just going to ask, um, We've demonstrated the, the points about phonology and the sort of the way Arabic texts are normally uh, edited. I mean, this is all, of course, moving the background is that these texts are normally written in classical Arabic. In the 19th century, the sort of wider register of colloquial or mixed Arabic, whatever sorts of other forms you might think of, wouldn't normally be edited. And I just wondered whether to um, to what extent the library is interested in this wider set of registers of Arabic texts, which we know. Certainly, there are in the modern period. There's more and more of them that we're coming across, and people are getting interested in them. And then, I guess, how do you render them? I mean, do you write it as sort of, as sort of Mark Twain? I mean, how do we? Are people thinking about how to actually render colloquial Arabic into a readable, lucid English? Well, I, I guess I wouldn't say that that's new in the 19th century. You have even Ahmed ibn Hanbal has hadiths in the Mustad where they say ish something, you know, and it's like so. Uh, you see registers all over the place. And even when it's classical Arabic, you have different registers because it's different genres of stuff that are being matched together. So I think the problem is is general. I don't think there's a one-size-fit-all solution to it, but uh, I think we try to be sensitive to it. Um, we're negotiating right now, there's a 
text about, uh, by a Muslim scholar from the 13th century who's complaining about Christians working in the government. So he has alongside legal language about what's wrong about that. He has actual anecdotes about people, you know, embezzling and stealing chickens and various <laughs> things. So, uh, you know, selling property out the back door. So he, he is trying to use different registers and sometimes it's working, sometimes it's not working very well. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do well and it requires a high level of competence in various levels of English so, and something. So what we have been having a problem with, he, he wants to make the classical sound like uh, you know, Milton or something and it, it comes out sounding strange and not fitting to the topic. So. Um, we're negotiating. Maybe ask Chip in the break. Chip, the break. Okay. Okay. Lunch time. Lunch time. Thank you. Yeah.